The History Channel Original Podcast. History This Week, July 16th, 1945. I'm Sally Helm. The crew doesn't know what it is they're carrying in the port hangar of this warship crossing the Pacific Ocean, the USS Indianapolis. They start placing bets. Maybe it's a car because it's so big. One sailor jokes that it's probably a special delivery of scented toilet paper for famed General Douglas MacArthur. Or maybe it's a special map with instructions on how best to invade Japan. That would make some sense. They're traveling at a breakneck speed, so whatever it is, it must be important. One sailor guesses, hopefully, that it's whiskey to toast the end of World War II, which they all hope is close at hand. Not long before, ship captain Charles McVeigh had been called to an ultra-secret meeting at naval headquarters in San Francisco. The ship had docked at Mare Island to repair damage from a Japanese kamikaze plane. McVeigh's superiors gave him a mission, deliver this package to Tinian Island, about 1,500 miles south of Tokyo. He tells his men, even I don't know what's in there. What's in there is enriched uranium and other components of the atomic bomb that will come to be called Little Boy. It will be dropped on the Japanese city of Hiroshima, a terrible act that American leaders believe will effectively end the war. The USS Indianapolis sets out from Mare Island and sails at high speed toward Tinian, with one stop at Pearl Harbor along the way. After 10 days, on July 26th, they drop the mysterious package in the hands of the US military and head right back out to sea. But this trip will be different. Having just completed its secret mission, Indy's every move will no longer be closely scrutinized. So when disaster strikes, these men will be forced to fend for themselves. Today, horror at sea. What did the crew of the USS Indianapolis endure after they'd completed their top secret mission? And why was no one around to help them? Historian Sarah Vladek has interviewed more than 100 of the sailors who served aboard the USS Indianapolis. At 610 feet long, that is about two football fields, it was a striking vessel. Indianapolis was this beautiful ship. She was sleek and she had these beautiful teak decks on the front of the ship, on the bow. And everyone knew this ship. She was President Roosevelt's ship of state. She was the flagship of the Fifth Fleet. So she's famous. She's famous, yes. So captaining this ship is an honor for Charles McVeigh. He comes from an accomplished naval family. They said he had a pepsodent smile, which apparently meant like this grand, bright white smile and kind of a cherubic face. In late July of 1945, McVeigh and the crew are feeling relieved. 
they've completed the top-secret mission. So now Indy, with its nearly 1,200-man crew, is headed back out to sea, steering west towards the Philippines. It was very, very hot. The Pacific in the summer, very hot. So most of them slept topside and in their skivvies, which are essentially their underwear, or nothing. On the night of July 30th, 1945, McVeigh is in his cabin when, all of a sudden, an explosion rattles the ship. He's thrown to the floor. He was knocked out of bed. And he was not wearing any clothes. It was pitch black. Something has hit the ship. But what? Before the captain can gather his thoughts, there's a second explosion. And his cabin fills with white smoke. He runs onto the bridge to find out what's happened. And all the men had been knocked to the ground. Without any light, though, it's really impossible to see exactly how bad the damage is. Everything is a kind of organized chaos. The men are trained. They know how to assess damage and steady the ship. And McVeigh is thinking, maybe we've been hit by another kamikaze, like the one that struck a few months back. He tries calling the engine room, but the power is out. There's no way to reach them. So he's sending his officers down below to the various decks and locations to get an assessment. And most of the men he sent down never came back. Because down below, the ship is on fire. Men are screaming, burned, trying to run from the flames. Dozens have already died. McVeigh doesn't know any of this. And he doesn't know that it was not a kamikaze. A Japanese submarine has fired two torpedoes at the Indianapolis. The first one tore off the bow. And this is, you know, the first, you know, 12 to 20 feet of the ship. And then it opens it up like a giant mouse. So the water is just coming right in. And that second explosion was torpedo number two hitting Indy's aft stack. And this is where the ammunition store are. And unfortunately, this is also where a lot of the stewards and the Marines were sleeping. So it hit those quarters and they were taken out instantly. McVeigh can't see that. Like the crew, he can barely see anything in the dark. But he does know that his ship is listing dangerously to one side. He wants to do everything he can to save the ship. And at this point, he thinks he can save it until some of those men who he sent down to assess came back and said, there's no way we're saving this ship. It's only been seven minutes since the first torpedo strike, but Captain McVeigh gives the order to abandon ship. Remember, there is no power on board. Without communications, the only way they can yell abandon ship is by mouth and hmm. from man to man. So they're out there yelling, abandoned ship, abandoned ship, get your life vest. Some men start jumping overboard. When the ship listing, some men are in the water, some are still abandoning ship, some are staying on the ship until it goes out from underneath them. McVeigh is still on board. He thought he was going down with the ship and he was doing everything he could to get the men off the ship and in their life jackets. 
But then the decision is taken out of his hands. And so he is walking toward the fantail of the ship and kind of a wave washes over it and pushes him into the water. When he surfaced, there was no one around him. He thought he was entirely alone. And to his horror, he thought, my God, I'm the only survivor of this. How can that be? Hundreds of men did die in the explosions. Now, in the water, more have already drowned. But McVeigh is not alone. About 880 crewmen are alive, spread out and floating in the dark Pacific Ocean. There, they watch Indy sink. The bow of the ship went straight down and the fantail went up and it was like a skyscraper. Like, you know, three, 400 feet, this tail straight up into the sky with the moonlight silhouetting it. And otherwise it's pitch black and they can see some of the fires lighting the portholes and they're just watching their home sink slowly beneath the waves and there's nothing they can do about it. McVeigh is clinging to a crate from the ship. He's coated in fuel oil. The fumes are making him nauseous. And then he hears voices. He calls out and someone calls back. It's the ship's quartermaster who swims towards him. All over, survivors are gathering in the water. Some of them injured, some of them burned. Worst of all, corpses, the bodies of their friends, are floating in the water. I mean, everyone was scared. There was no one that wasn't afraid. Many of these men are teenagers. Some of them have spent very little time at sea. It has been 12 minutes since the torpedo strike. And these men, who moments ago were sleeping in their berths or lying on the deck, they are now in mortal peril. But there is hope. There have been successful sea rescues before, and crew members are pretty sure that the radio operator managed to get off an SOS. They think they're going to get rescued. So at first, they're like, this is going to be a couple of hours. Absolutely. They think there's no way a ship this important and this, you know, this big could disappear without anyone knowing. They think they just have to survive till morning. Rescue will come. In fact, they're counting on it. They have almost no supplies. A few hours later, when dawn breaks, it's clear that the night has been cruel. Those who were terribly injured did not survive long into the night. They were pretty much gone by the early morning of the first day. The survivors are now floating in a few large clusters spread out over a mile. Some have had friends die in their arms. They can't see each other, so each group thinks it's the only one left. Captain McVeigh is lucky. His group has a couple of rafts that came off the ship, but the rafts can only hold a few men at a time. Sarah Vladek says they also have fishing equipment that they use to catch a meal, but... They tried to fish, but then they realized they didn't know if the fish was poisonous, so they had to throw it back. McVeigh puts himself in charge of rations. On that first day, he gives each man two malted milk tablets, two biscuits, and a half-inch square of Spam. He calculates that the food can last 10 days. 
Another group has more supplies than anyone else, rafts and nets, but they don't have Captain McVeigh. They had no leadership and they turned on each other. And it really wasn't that they turned on each other in their right minds. It's a combination of severe hallucinations and just misunderstandings and the need to survive. Some of these misunderstandings turn fatal. The main enemies for everyone are hunger and thirst. But then, around noon, another threat arrives. In the 40s, the shark population was much denser in the Pacific. And, you know, there were sharks and everyone knew it that followed the ships around because of the trash and whatnot that, you know, went off the ships. Now, the bodies in the water begin to attract tiger sharks and oceanic white tips. Some are close to 20 feet long. And the water is crystal clear. Like, you can see 50 feet down. So they're seeing these schools of sharks right below them. Vladek says that unlike great white sharks, which sometimes mistakenly attack humans while hunting other prey, oceanic white tips are known for their aggression. At first, the sharks seem curious and gentle, bumping up against the men's legs in the water. But that does not last long. What most men talked about was the blood-curdling scream. You wouldn't see the attack, but you would hear it. And they knew another of their shipmates were taken. Near the raft supporting Captain McVeigh and his group, a few sharks appear. The men decide to sleep in turns and keep watch through the night. And I think the fear of the sharks is almost worse than the shark, right? Because I know if I saw that, if I saw hundreds of sharks swimming below me, I'd have a heart attack before the shark had a chance. I mean, it's just horrifying to imagine that. What do they do to sort of maintain hope, morale, strength, will to live? Like, what do they do? They really, in most cases, leaned on each other. They would sing. Songs like Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree by the Andrews Sisters. And I could tell you hundreds of accounts of the men teaching each other to pray. A lot of them learned how to pray for the first time. And so they would do that. And there would be group prayers. They would talk to each other. They would ask about things at home. Um, what do you miss the most? Fladick says there's one prayer in particular that keeps them going. The prayer that is talked about over and over and over is Psalm 23. And so they would say that in groups, like, you know, every morning and every night. And when things were scary, they would say the parts they remembered and, and repeat. Do you know it? How does it go? It's, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. The men are doing their best to stay hopeful, but the pressure is unrelenting. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they come. By the me. third day, some men even try to swim to the nearest shore, which is hundreds of miles away. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. They are all tormented by the same question. Why has no one come to save us? Hold up. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. On day one in the water, the men had hope. But then, day two passes, with no sign of a rescue. Another night, another morning, still nothing. The men have all but given up. I mean, this is, you know, day three, going on day four, that they're in the water, and they at this point realize no one knows they're missing. They are correct. The Navy still has no idea that the Indy has gone down. Operators did tap out an SOS, but the onboard power outage made it impossible to confirm whether the message ever actually went out. But then, on August 2nd, day four, the men spot something overhead. One sailor cries out, it's a plane. They look up, lock their eyes on it. But by now, they know better than to have much hope. There's been many, many planes that have flown over them. But when you're in the water and you don't have any emergency reflective gear or anything of that nature, you're invisible. But this time is different. The pilot of this plane is Lieutenant Wilbur Chuck Gwynn. And he's wondering, what is that down there? He's flying on a routine submarine patrol meaning he's just looking for submarines that are out there. And as he's looking out there, he looks down and he sees an oil slick. And now an oil slick is an indication of a submarine. So he's thinking, oh my gosh, we have the enemy. Attack. Gwyn gives an order to his crew. Prepare to bomb. As he gets closer to do this, he sees something that's really out of the ordinary. He said it looked like... Um, you know, like a cucumber. I said it like bumps on the water. He flies lower and lower to examine the bumps, descending to 300 feet. And that's when he saw men waving their arms. And these men are covered in oil. The men he spotted were the ones that were swimming. And so he's not seeing rafts yet at this point, but he's seeing hundreds of men in the water. And so he doesn't even know who they are. Doesn't know who they are because... Like everyone else, he has no idea that the Indianapolis has sunk. The fact that Chuck Gwynn spotted them was a miracle. Gwynn shouts over the intercom, ducks on the pond, ducks on the pond. That means men in the water. The long-awaited rescue can begin. And these men who had been passed over a hundred times didn't even believe that he actually spotted them at first. And it wasn't until he tipped his wing, which was a signal, I see you, 
that then they started cheering. Then with any any energy they had left, they were hooping and hollering and, you know, come save us, come save us. They were at death's door at this point too. So How long had they been in the water? At this point, I think they were in the water about 80 hours. Wow. And swimming. I mean, you know, that's a long time to be swimming and fighting for your life. Meanwhile, the Navy's command center gets word that hundreds of men are in the water. But which of their fleet has gone down? They ask all ships to report their location and realize USS Indianapolis isn't calling in. They check to see if Indy ever arrived in the Philippines. When the you know actual report comes in saying Indianapolis never arrived as expected, they think, oh man, you know, is it really that ship? And then it's confirmed. Back on the water, more planes arrive. They drop rafts and supplies. One pilot goes totally against protocol, landing his plane in the water. He decides to hell with what's going on. There's men in the water because he actually sees the sharks attacking men. And he said, we have to do something. Some of Indy's survivors hang onto the wings while they wait for the rescue ships to arrive. And even with salvation in sight, men are still dying. The first ships show up around midnight, 12 hours after Chuck Gwynn spotted the survivors. They picked up the men. There were 320 who lived and four who passed away nearly right away. So they say there was 316 survivors. 316 survivors out of almost 1,200 men. One of them is Captain Charles McVeigh. The survivors are eventually taken to a hospital on Guam, where they're treated for dehydration, starvation, gruesome injuries and burns, and of course, acute mental distress. They are also given firm instructions. Do not tell anyone what happened to your ship, not even your family. The war is still happening, and the Navy doesn't want the enemy to learn that the Indianapolis is gone. Four days after the rescue, on August 6, 1945, the United States detonates an atomic bomb over Hiroshima, Japan. It's built using the supplies that the Indianapolis had delivered. While the country celebrates the end of the war, while soldiers come home, naval officers inform more than 800 families that their lost loved ones died in the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. And the families have serious questions for the Navy. How come this could happen so close to the end of the war and no one knew? They say someone has to be responsible for this. We have to have a finger to point at. The Navy zeroes in on the man in charge. The Navy blamed Captain McVeigh. He was court-martialed or he was brought to court-martial. And this was rare because this was the first time a captain was ever court-martialed for the loss of a ship during wartime. McVeigh is charged with failure to zigzag. That's a maneuver that the Navy argues could have saved the ship. And they also say he didn't issue his abandoned ship order in a timely fashion. The surviving crew, and even the captain of the enemy submarine, testify that 
there's nothing McVeigh could have done. But the Navy finds him guilty on the first count. McVeigh is already a changed, grief-stricken man. After all, he went to sea with 1,200 men, and almost 900 of them did not come home. And I think you can't be a human being and care for your ship in the way that everyone talked about McVeigh caring for it and his crew, and to not be affected profoundly by that. So I think that he felt he deserved whatever the Navy did to him. And in fact, he did say that. Whatever the Navy did to me is fine. I accept it. And these are young men that will never live a life, you know, and will never go home and see their moms or their wives or their family again. And he carried that whether or not he was actually responsible. McVeigh carried that heavy burden. And for a long time, many survivors of the Indianapolis disaster didn't want to talk about what had happened to them. The war was over. Why relive the terrors of those days and nights at sea? They came home, they got back to work, they got back to their families, they did not breathe a word. But in 1960, some of those sailors hold their first reunion. McVeigh attends, and he's saluted by every man there. The event becomes an annual tradition. And over the decades, as the men start to talk among themselves, a cause emerges. They decide to work together to exonerate their captain, especially after McVeigh dies by suicide in 1968. It took long years of lobbying Congress and the Navy. But in 2001, another verdict is reached. More than 55 years after the USS Indianapolis was sunk by torpedoes in shark-infested waters, Captain Charles McVeigh is posthumously exonerated. He can now be remembered with honor, officially as one of those who endured one of World War II's most haunting, most harrowing episodes, together with his crew. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, History this week at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guest, Sarah Vladek, co-author of Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history and the 50-year fight to exonerate an innocent man. She's also the director of the documentary USS Indianapolis, The Legacy. This episode was produced by Chloe Weiner. It was sound designed by Brian Flood, and story edited by Jim O'Grady. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press, Corinne Wallace, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producers are Hazel May and Jonah Buchanan. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next week. And hey, If you are in crisis, please contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline 
by calling 988, or you can go to 988lifeline.org. Copyright 2023, a Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved.